My name is Jared. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and it's my pleasure to get to share with you this morning from the book of Daniel within the series that we started last week. Um, it's really fun because I, we moved here almost three years ago, and I'm not the new guy anymore. It's cool. It's really cool because not everything gets blamed on me anymore as the new guy. It just can't happened. So uh, we recently, about a year and a half ago, we welcomed Tony Jacobs as our children's ministry director. And when Tony came, a few months after he got here, we, we were kind of thinking about, well, what can we do to kind of welcome him? And an opportunity arose. You see, Tony has some things in his office that are fun, and so we use those as props. And we snuck into Jeremy's office together one day when Jeremy was gone, and, and we noticed that there's a number of pictures that Pastor Jeremy has around his office, and they're super cute. Like, honestly, if you see those, you can just, ah, like, it's really, really, they're sweet and they're nice, and we thought to ourselves, well, we can improve that. So there were a few of us. We took a few pictures, we printed them out, and then we replaced some of his with our own. You want to see them? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, instead of the baby on the book, we have Yoda. We use the Yoda. Uh, Super, super cute, right? So I I don't have a Texas A&M shirt, so I grabbed the flag and I held Yoda. And then, well, Tony, yes, they just can't. (laughs) Well, yeah. It's not quite the same because Yoda's missing the back half of his head. But... It was super fun. I would encourage you, if you ever have the opportunity, to prank your boss or your boss's boss. In my case, please do it. It's absolutely worth it. We actually just printed these out recently and stuck them in his office. It took us way too long to do it, but it was worth it. It was so good. I still haven't heard his reaction, but it took him a while to find one of them. And he's not here today, so we get to have some fun, right? This is one of the things. As a staff, we have a great time. We, we really do. We laugh a lot. Our staff meetings are full of laughter. Um, we do take some things very, very seriously, but at the same time, we do our best to have fun. And so this is just one of the things that we do to have fun, and one of the things we did with Tony specifically to help him assimilate to the culture. What is assimilation? Assimilation... Wrong button. There we go. Simulation. This is a great definition that I found. It's the absorption or, and integration of people, ideas, or culture into a wider society or culture. Out of curiosity, how many of you are transplants from somewhere else to the Frisco area? Just show of hands. Put them up high. Oh, yeah. Look at that. So before you moved here, if you moved from somewhere outside of the Midwest, did you ever say two words distinctly, you and all? Have you been assimilated into the Texan culture and do you now combine those two words into a single one? Yeah, Yeah, right. Out of curiosity, who's been assimilated in that way? Yeah, most of you. I'm resolute. I'm holding out. (laughs) At least I'm trying. Assimilation is the absorption and integration of people, ideas, culture into a wider society. I... I can't hear the word assimilation without thinking of something from my childhood, the Borg. 
If you ever watch Star Trek, I'm kind of a nerd geek. I like Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, Star Trek, all that stuff. I think it's fascinating and, and fun. But the Borg is one of the arch enemies in the Star Trek universe. And they simply assimilate people into this big cube-like thing. And they have a motto. Resistance is futile. You will be assimilated. The Borg isn't the only ones who used that line. Maybe not in exactly those phrases, but that is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did with the people of all the different cultures that they conquered. Assimilation happens anytime we enter a new culture, right? Whether by force or by choice, we do assimilate. So we are going to continue our look at Daniel, but in just a quick, quick recap. In 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar captured Judah and he ordered Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring select young men to Babylon. This was the first of three stages that people were brought to Babylon from Judah. These young men would be trained for three years and then would serve and to help lead the country. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men that were taken. This is a brilliant strategy. It really is, because what Nebuchadnezzar is saying is bring the leaders, bring those who have influence and who already have a position of authority, the nobles, the royalty, bring them to Babylon, we'll train them for three years and teach them, assimilate them into our culture, and then when we bring the others from Judah, then they will automatically look to those that they already have knowledge of or maybe personally know, and it will be easier to assimilate them into our culture. It's genius, but these young men that were chosen were resolute. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Daniel chapter 1, and we will jump right in. Daniel 1.8, Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank, so he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. This is so stinking cool. Daniel determined. Many translations translate this section of words, the, the word that we translate as determined, actually as resolve, which I think is probably a more accurate word for describing the decision that Daniel and his friends made. The CSB says Daniel determined, which is a great word, absolutely it fits. But the ESV and the CJB, the Complete Jewish Bible, both translate that as resolve. I think there's something a little bit more powerful about resolve than, than determining. The New American Standard, which is a super literal yet readable translation, says Daniel made up his mind. It's important that we make up our mind about things. So a, a literal definition, just a more explanation of that word resolve is to lay or to set down, to arrange, to fix, to stand, put, to install, like software, no, to mount or to establish. You see, they were established in their decision and in what God had given them. This was incredibly important. And I believe that Daniel's resolve must have been a combination both of the training that he received as a young man and of his personal resiliency. Because without that instruction that he received, he would not have known what would defile him. 
And without personal resiliency, he would never have been able to resist the temptation of the best that the king had to offer. This was a firm decision that Daniel made. He was resolute in his conviction not to defile himself with the king's food. And as we read scripture, we see other instances of this as well, other biblical characters who were resolute in their decision and firm in their choices. Another example of that is Joshua. Right before the people of Israel entered into the promised land, Joshua says to them, if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, then choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He was resolute in who he was going to serve, regardless of the situation that was before them. Joshua knew the situation that they were walking into would be difficult. And he was resolved to follow the Lord, just like Daniel. It usually, normally, really helps to make decisions in advance. This is one thing that works out in all areas of our lives. You, You know this, we've experienced this together. When we make a choice, in advance, it helps us when the situation actually arises. Michael Hyatt is a well-known author, speaker. He was the CEO of Thomas Nelson Publishing, the, the largest Christian publisher in the country. For a number of years, he used to write a personal blog about productivity and leadership and all kinds of stuff. And I used to read his blog constantly because it was really, really good stuff. And he posted this one blog that caught my attention for a couple of reasons, uh, you'll see. He's talking about exercise. He's talking about making decisions before you actually have to make them. And so he says this, set your exercise clothes out. I'm no different than anyone else, with the exception of amazing spring or fall weather. Amen? Uh, Today is fantastic. It was 60 degrees when I opened the door. Oh, praise God. With the exception of amazing spring or fall weather, I'd rather stay inside where it's comfortable. Right? We agree? Uh, Yeah. Where there's air conditioning. That's in brackets. But I need exercise for numerous reasons. I'm always more productive when I get it. For me, that begins by setting out my exercise clothes the night before. It's how I make my intention real to my subconscious. So think about it. If you get up and you have to go and choose your clothes for the day and you know you should go exercise, for how many of us is that the first thing we grab and go, yeah, I know I should do that, so I'm going to. It's so much harder to do that when your clothes are still in the drawer. If they're out on the dresser waiting for you, you open your eyes, you stretch, you look, and you see your shorts. Okay, it's easier to make that decision because the decision was already made for you. Making decisions in advance really does help in a lot of ways. Uh, Think about this. If you decide in advance, here's some situations you may come across. How will you you respond, better or worse? If you decide in advance, how you'll respond the next time your spouse leaves the toilet seat up. 
If you've already chosen how you'll respond, then more than likely you're going to respond that way, and it's going to be a better outcome. <laughs> Decide in advance how you'll respond when your son or daughter comes home late after curfew. You see, when we're emotional, that's when we tend to make poor decisions, when we're reactionary, and we say things that we regret. I know I'm not the only one who said things that I regret. Decide how you'll handle critique from a colleague or boss in advance. Critique is hard. Nobody goes into a meeting where you know you're going to see critique. <laughs> Skip it along. Yay! It's, but if we decide in advance to be receptive, to listen, to consider, in normal situations, we will respond better. Decide in advance to spend time building your relationship with Jesus. What does that look like for you? Is it in the morning sitting down with a fantastic cup of coffee or hot chocolate or tea or whatever and, and taking time to be with Jesus? Or is it taking regular breaks throughout the day? What does that look like? For many of us, I think, for me, this is one thing that personally, I struggle with it not just being something I check off. I have a Bible reading plan that I go through each day, and I go through the whole Bible each year, and I've chosen different reading plans. It's, it's a great practice. It's one I started a number of years ago, but honestly, there are some days where I read, and I look back at the pages of the Bible, and I don't remember a thing that I just read because that morning I was checking a box. But if I decide in advance, if I... If I'm conscious of it and I take the time to sit and pray before I open the Bible, God is always faithful. He always shows up. When we decide in advance, when we're resolved and have already made the decision, we don't have the pressure or stress of making the decision on the fly or in an emotionally charged environment. So they decided in advance. What did they decide? Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food. This temptation was absolutely incredible. Look, there's nothing new under the sun. Daniel and his friends, they've been taken away from their home. It's been ravished. It's been conquered. They're scrapping for food. And now they're taken to Babylon and this luxurious table is placed before them. It's very similar. I, I was trying to think of ideas. And actually, Pastor Wayne recommended this as a thought. Um, the Hunger Games. Was, is, there's nothing new under the sun, right? If you think about the Hunger Games, District 12 is run down. It's, they're conquered, essentially. And then you take these two people out of District 12, you put them on a train, what's the first thing they get? This table full of food and hot chocolate. In their case, this didn't defile them, but in Daniel's case, it would have. Imagine that, going from nothing to a table full of all the food you could eat and more, and it all tastes amazing. So I started wondering, what would have defiled Daniel? Because the Mosaic law doesn't prohibit eating meat or drinking wine. So how would the king's table have defiled him? 
And I found this note in one of the commentaries that I looked at, and I think it's worth mentioning. Daniel may, have, may be observing a mosaic dietary laws, although wine is not among the unclean foods. He may have in mind food offered to Babylonian idols, but food from a produce diet is also offered to idols. Or he may wish to limit his indebtedness to the king, yet his training as a courtier further obligates him to the king. Instead of choosing only one option, Daniel seems to be moved by a combination of these concerns and perhaps others. It's not a comprehensive list. To resist full, what? Assimilation in order to retain his Jewish heritage. Daniel didn't want to lose what God had given him or who he was called to be. And in that, he sets an incredible example for us all because we're all exiles now. They were in a literal, physical Babylon. They were exiled from their home country. You and I, we are all exiles of digital Babylon. Recently, um, Barna published a new book. David Kinnaman and Mark Matlock published a brand new book, and it's fantastic. And in it, they say that we are all exiles. So this is what they mean by that. The book is called Faith for Exiles. It's five ways for a new generation to follow Jesus in a digital Babylon. They say ancient Babylon was the pagan but spiritual, hyper-stimulated, multicultural, imperial crossroads that became the unwilling home of Judean exiles, including the prophet Daniel in the 6th century BCE. But... Digital Babylon is not a physical place. It's the pagan but spiritual, hyper-stimulated, multicultural, imperial crossroads that's the virtual home of every person with Wi-Fi, a data plan, or, for most of us, both. You see, we are all residents of this digital Babylon. It's true for me. It's true for you. It's especially true for our children and teenagers who have grown up not knowing a world without the internet. This is where we reside. So through this examination in the book, they make a number of points. And in previous books, they looked at why teenagers who leave the church do not stay connected to the church. In this book, they turn that on its head and they examine the reasons that teenagers, as they grow and mature, why they do stay connected, and they identified five principles. And just very quickly, these five practices of resilient faith, to form a resilient identity, experience intimacy with Jesus. So often, our understanding, or, or we, we resort to simply knowledge. If I just know more, then I will automatically do. That doesn't equate. We need to experience the grace and the love and the mercy of God and experience that intimacy with Jesus because that's not something that can just be taken away. Second practice, in a complex and anxious age, would you agree that we live in a complex and anxious age? Yeah. What practice can we do to develop resilient faith in that? Develop the muscles of cultural discernment I think this is one thing that we as a church address and do very, very well, discerning what does culture say, what does scripture say? I'm gonna follow scripture regardless of what the culture tells me I must do. 
Number three, when isolation and mistrust are the norms, we forge meaningful intergenerational relationships. As part of the student ministry staff, this is what I get to see each Wednesday night as adults and students enter the building together and then engage in conversation and activity together every single Wednesday night. These intergenerational relationships are incredibly important. We see it all throughout Scripture, the, God, the way that God uses older generations to inspire, encourage, correct, and disciple the younger generations. We have another opportunity for this too. Registration is still open. The men's retreat is next weekend. So men, if you're not signed up, if you don't have something else on your calendar with the family, I would encourage you to sign up because it's a great opportunity to form a meaningful and intergenerational relationship. Number four, to ground and motivate an ambitious generation. Speaking specifically of a current teenage generation, would you say they're ambitious? As someone who works with them regularly, absolutely. They're incredibly ambitious. They're incredibly ingenuitive. And they have some fantastic ideas. And they're not held, they don't hold on to the old way of doing things. They want to try new things. So to ground and motivate them, we train them for vocational discipleship. What does that look like? Train them to be a disciple in whatever God calls them to do. As a husband, as a wife, as a father, as a mother, as an engineer, as a teacher, as a doctor or a nurse, as a custodian, it doesn't matter what it is. We teach them to be a vocational disciple, to share Jesus where they are at. And fifth, to curb entitlement and self-centered tendencies. Again, I think an accurate description of the current culture and climate, the practice of resilient faith, we Help them by engaging in a countercultural mission. What culture says, this is important, go do this. The Bible says this. This is the countercultural mission. Let's go do that. Let's be different. Let's be a light in the darkness. Those five practices will help, and not just with teenagers, I think with all of us. See, in our digital Babylon, we're tempted from every direction at times to be defiled. So how can we be defiled here and now? Uh, I was curious what our church staff would think. And so we have a, a church group, me, that we send messages and stuff back and forth. So I sent a message and said, hey, what do you guys see in culture that defiles us? I'd like to, to know your thoughts as I'm preparing. And I got this response. AJ, Pastor AJ said, frozen or any animated Disney feature after Aladdin, for that matter, of which I would agree, Aladdin is the best animated Disney movie, period. You can argue with me. You're free to be wrong. Yeah. Pastor Wayne took exception to that. He said, except for Tangled. It's perfect. <laughs> and then, I got to tell you, we have fun. Pastor Jeremy responded, hey, AJ, let it go, dude. <laughs> it was so good. We do have fun, but at the same time, I also got some very, very good insight and feedback. So very briefly, this is just a starter list. This is not comprehensive at all. 
Uh, there are a number of things in culture that we do see that, are, that can possibly defile us. The temptation to blend in. How many of us feel that? We want to look, sound like, blend in with the people around us, and so we do and say things in order to not stick out. Number two, instant gratification at the cost of long-term stewardship. Hey, you can't afford it? No big deal. Just put it on a credit card. You can pay for it later with 17% interest. Great idea. Number three, doing whatever you please as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else as if our actions don't have consequences. And number four, consumption of harmful media. That one is a huge one. There's a lot of media out there that is not good for us. And it will defile. There are scenes in movies that I have seen that I wish I could erase from my memory. So, Daniel 1 9. We got to move on because I'm running behind. I apologize. Uh, Daniel, God granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch. The contrast here is striking, and you have to put this kind of in the framework. They have been taken out of Judah, and now everything is being provided for them by who? Nebuchadnezzar, the king. He's feeding them. He is teaching them, not he personally, but his team. They're teaching them, they're providing food, shelter, all that stuff for them, but that's not really true because God is the one who is working. He's the agent who's working behind the scenes. He granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch. And the word here for kindness is one of our favorite words, has said. It literally, loving kindness, especially related to loyalty within a relationship. This didn't come from two people in vastly different cultures. One, a Babylonian servant, probably a eunuch, and Daniel, who is an exile, and his friends, they came from two different walks of life. God is the one who granted the kindness between the two of them. God is the active agent working behind the scene. If you want a really, really, really good understanding of the word has said and why that is so important, Pastor Wayne preached a fantastic sermon on September 24th in 2017. It's available online. You can go watch it on the website. It's fantastic. And we don't have time to get into any of that, but I would encourage you to go back and look at that if you are wondering. You see, these young men, like us, in a lot of ways, we're faced with a really, really difficult situation, and we have to remember that God is the one who is working behind the scenes. Okay, Daniel, 9 through 10. So, God granted Daniel kindness and compassion, and the chief eunuch said to Daniel, I fear the Lord, my Lord, the king, who assigned your food and drink. What if he sees your face is looking thinner than the other young men your age? You would endanger my life with the king. This is an absolutely reasonable response from the chief eunuch, right? He doesn't want to die. And Daniel has asked to have a diet of nothing but vegetables and water. The Babylonians didn't have any idea what a pink slip looked like. They did not fire people. They did not understand termination pay, only termination the chief eunuch feared for his life because he would not have been taking care of the young men that had been put in his charge. And if the king sees this, he's not gonna reasonably go, hey, tell me what's going on. Like, give me some background information. No, it's a pretty swift decision and it comes with a swing of a sword. It's a reasonable response from the chief eunuch. But Daniel continues to seek a solution. He doesn't give up. 
What does he do? He said to the guard who the chief eunuch had assigned to Daniel. See the, the switch there? The chief eunuch is afraid for his life, but Daniel now talks to the guard. He assigned to him. So he says this, please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. So he seeks permission to do a short-term trial. It's a really low-risk solution to the problem at hand, right? But is Daniel testing God? No. No, rather than testing God, look, please test your servants. He's not testing God. The Bible tells us not to test God as you did at Masa, which is to constantly complain and to always, like, always doubting God. He's not testing God. He's saying, give us this test and let's see what happens. He had another choice, right? He could have dug in his heels and given an ultimatum, but he did not do that. He proposes a test, and that's important because we work together with people God has placed us in close proximity with. We find common ground. We're, we're trying to achieve the same thing. We, we try to find these things that we can agree on to work toward. Daniel didn't want to be defiled by the king's food, but he also wanted to be and to serve in the place that God had put him. Do we do the same thing? Daniel 14 through 16, the guard agreed with them about this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked better and healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. This is really, really cool. This is in private. This is not a big public thing. The guard still receives the food, right? Look at verse 16. He continued to remove. So he receives all the food. He just takes the meat and the wine away and gives them only the vegetables and water. This isn't something that they made public and made a big announcement about. Rather, they just did it. Because after 10 days, he saw that they looked better and healthier. This is not about a miracle diet. Though if you want to do the Daniel plan, have fun. It's hard here in Texas, I'll tell you that. There's no brisket on that list. And apparently coffee's not allowed, so I just don't have any interest myself. It's not a miracle plan, and it's not about putting God to the test. It's not. Rather, it's about God, the active agent, sustaining these young men who followed them. The guard took Daniel, he took his test, and like Vicini, he accepted the test. And he saw the result. Right? So what was the result? God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. How cool is that? At the end of the time that the king had said to present them, the chief eunuch presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. How long was that? Three years. At the end of three years. Though the king interviewed them, and among all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they began to attend the king. In every manner of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and mediums in his entire kingdom. 
Daniel remained there till the first year of King Cyrus. Magicians and mediums, these guys that, that Daniel and his friends are compared to. Magicians. Hartum. This is a word that's super, super interesting. It literally means a magician, a diviner, or can also mean a scribe. And this is used in two different places in the Old Testament. It's used to describe the Egyptian magicians when they go up against Moses. And it's also used in Daniel to describe the king's advisors who were magicians. The mediums, Asaph, this word is really interesting as well because it's only used in Daniel. It's not found anywhere else in the Old Testament. And so scholars have had to look just within the context of Daniel to try to figure out what was their role and, and what they have come to determine the best they possibly can is this would have been somebody who was an astrologer or an enchanter. There's an exorcist or a conjurer, a necromancer. They're, they're dealing with the spiritual realm and the realm and the spiritual world. And these are the guys Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are compared to. And what's the result? They're 10 times better, which is a great figurative description. The king can't stump them with questions. And here's the other thing. These guys, the magicians and mediums, they would have been trained their entire lives. They would have studied their texts. They would have gained their experience from years of experiences and things. This, these would not have been young men. And these young men, 15, 16 years old, were being compared to these seasoned advisors and found 10 times better. That does not come from study. It doesn't, it doesn't come naturally. Rather, God was sustaining them. God gave them the ability to understand. God was faithful, actively working behind the scenes. So what's the difference between serving the living God and, and serving false idols as these guys do? Jeremiah 10, one through five, God shows the futility of worshiping idols. Read this with me. Hear the word that the Lord has spoken to you, house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. Do not learn the way of the nations or be terrified by signs in the heavens, although the nations are terrified by them, for the customs of the people are worthless. Someone cuts down a tree from the forest. It's worked by the hands of a craftsman with a chisel. He decorates it with silver and gold. It's fastened with a hammer and nails so it won't totter. Like scarecrows in a cucumber patch, their idols can't speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm. And they cannot do any good. The difference between magicians and necromancers Everything that they learned was from false idols who did no good, and quite possibly the demonic realm which would lead them down a path of evil. And Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they worshiped the living God, and they were resolutely resilient in all that they did. These young men don't serve dumb and mute idols. They serve the living God who's actively involved in their lives. He wasn't created by human hands. Instead, he created ours. For the Babylonians, this wisdom and understanding came from years and study. Yeah, God gave this to these young men in order 
that they would be able to faithfully serve him though they were not in their own land. He prepared them to serve well. He prepared them to serve so well that Daniel served in Babylon for 65 years, faithfully serving God. It may not always seem like it, but we live in a very real digital Babylon. We're bombarded with messages and opportunities to compromise constantly, yet we've been saved by the grace of God to serve him and to be a light where we are. So my question for all of us, myself included, is this. Is there something in our lives that defiles us? Something that compromises our identities as followers of Christ? I want to encourage you to take a few minutes, take some time this week, sit down, pray, journal, write, Ask God to show you. Ask God to reveal himself to you in a way that maybe you haven't seen before. And may we, like David, pray Psalm 139, 23. Examine me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. And in doing that, may we be open to hearing what God would say to each of us. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the example of Daniel and his friends. I thank you that they were resolute and that they were resilient and that they did not succumb to being fully assimilated in the Babylon culture, and I ask the same for us. I ask that we would not assimilate into the culture around us, but rather that we would stand out for you. Listen, maybe you're here today and you're very much a part of digital Babylon. Maybe you're not a part of the kingdom of God yet, but God wants to set you free from the captivity you're living in. He sent his son to die in your place for your sins on a cross 2,000 years ago. And he offers the free gift of life, eternal life, if you only just trust him to forgive you of your sins. We can't do it on our own. We need Jesus to make us clean. And the good news is he is faithful and true. He's promised to give us new life when we come to him and acknowledge our need for a savior. And maybe seeds have been planted in your life over days and years that are just now starting to sprout. Maybe for the first time this is making sense. If that's you this morning and you would say, I've never placed my faith in Jesus and I want to do that this morning, I want to be free from this digital Babylon I'm living in, would you just raise your hand right now? I'd like to see it and celebrate with you and acknowledge the freedom that you have in Christ. Anyone this morning? Okay. Father, I pray for all of us who follow you and pray that you would help us to be resilient. God, help us in a culture that would defile us to never give up, but to be resolute in following you. And Lord, I pray too for this offering that we are now about to receive. God, I pray that it would be used for your kingdom and your glory, and that you would bless 
what we give back to you out of what you have entrusted us to steward. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.